Hey folks, today's episode is a special guest in our podcast feed from Down to Earth, the Planet to Plate podcast, presented by our friends at the Kivera Coalition and Radio Cafe. Working Wild U host Jared Beaver sat down with Down to Earth host Mary Charlotte DeMondi to discuss why we started Working Wild U, why we chose to do a season on wolves, and the important role working lands play in supporting people and wildlife in the American West. Thanks so much to Mary Charlotte and the Kivera Coalition for welcoming Jared to their incredible interview lineup. Other recent guests on the show have included ranch manager Mark Biaggi, author Dan Flores, and filmmaker John Liu. Check out Down to Earth, the Planet to Plate podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, let's roll the tape. From the Radio Cafe and the Kivira Coalition, this is Down to Earth, the Planet to Plate podcast. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte Domandi. This is a program about regenerative agriculture and the many different paths people are taking to fix a broken food system, restore soil, and mitigate climate change. Today we have a special program in which we're talking to the host of another podcast, Jared Beaver, of Working Wild University. That podcast is a co-production between Montana State University Extension and the Western Landowners Alliance. The Kivira Coalition and the Western Landowners Alliance are longtime friends and allies, and both are working with a foundational principle called the Radical Center. I'm going to take just a moment to talk about the origin story of Kivira, which started in the 1990s when ranchers and environmentalists were doing a lot of fighting with each other. An environmental leader in New Mexico invited a rancher to a meeting, and they discovered that they had far more in common than they had differences. They cared for the land and water and wildlife. And the acknowledgement of this area of agreement, which was about 80%, came to be called the Radical Center. But one of the issues that has long not been in that area of agreement has been the issue of wolves. Many ranchers, though not all, have for generations been at the heart of the movement to get rid of wolves on grazing lands, including public land. Starting in the early 20th century, wolves were killed in the most brutal ways, including strychnine poisoning, which not only caused an agonizing death, but also killed the wildlife that fed on their carcasses. The millions of wolves on the North American continent dwindled to a number so small that they became an endangered species. Environmentalists fought successfully for their reintroduction into the wild, and as a result, there's been a lot of tension between ranchers who want to protect their livestock and the environmental movement, which wants to restore these animals to their natural habitat. And this is exactly the issue that the Working Wild University podcast takes on in its first season. It's co-hosted by Jared Beaver, who's the Wildlife Extension Specialist at Montana State University in Bozeman. Extension services are part of the land-grant colleges and universities in the United States, and their purpose is to provide accessible information and education to people in the area of those colleges, especially agricultural producers. A word about the Western Landowners Alliance, co-producer of the podcast. They are a terrific group that brings together private landowners with land managers, conservation biologists, and many others who recognize that the West is a patchwork of public and private land, and so to have a healthy landscape on an ecosystem scale, you need to engage private landowners. So, with all that said, welcome Jared Beaver to Down to Earth. Thank you, Mary Charlotte. It's great to be here. So, you've been producing the first season of the Western Wild U podcast, 
which is all about wolves on the western landscape and how they're coexisting with ranchers and others living on the land. What was the original idea? How did this podcast come into being in the first place? I started my position in April of 2020, which is, you know, right at the start of this COVID-19 pandemic shutdown. Mm -hmm. And so trying to create and think about how do I maintain a sustainable outreach program in the face of growing uncertainty from travel and pandemics and operating budgets and technological advances. And I started thinking of how can I combine my role with an extension and, and dealing with these human-related wildlife issues on a sustainable extension platform. And I was working very closely with Western Landowners Alliance on a lot of different issues. And this idea kind of grew of, hey, we're talking to a lot of people from a lot of diverse backgrounds, and they're telling some truly amazing stories that I feel like the world could really benefit from hearing because our society is divided now more than ever, and particularly across our rural-urban divide. And what we're hearing is that there are people that are are working across middle grounds and middle issues. And so how can we dig in to some of those issues and have people start to develop curiosity and creative thinking and maybe get to a shared vision of the future of where landscapes, wildlife, and people all thrive. Tell us a bit about your own history with this topic of wolves. Sure. You know, my background is mostly in wildlife population ecology and habitat management. With my position and extension here, I have a research and extension component. Most of my background has been with large mammals and and game species. And so wolves kind of fit that bill in terms of these larger mammals on the landscape and can cause and stir a lot of human emotion, good and, and bad and everything kind of in between. And so naturally stepping into this role within Montana, you know, wolves and predation in general is a big issue and one that I deal with quite a bit. So let's talk a little bit about the story of wolves in the United States. Up until the early 1900s, wolves were abundant across Western landscapes. What happened? What happened then? Yeah. And so we expanded West and agricultural production expanded West. There was this framework that the fewer predators on the landscape, the more efficient and effective livestock and agricultural production could be. And so what really started as what is now the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, a branch of that began to remove predators from the landscape on a pretty wide spread. And so you had this kind of federal push to remove the predators so that it was more cost-effective in terms of raising livestock and agricultural production in the U.S. as a time as, as we were expanding across the landscape. I mean, one of the roots of a lot of the problems that are still with us in the American West is the Homestead Act of 1862, and that gave people 160 acres of public land, federal land, that they had to live on and farm. That was the the deal. 
And this resulted, of course, in the removal and displacement and death of innumerable Native people. And there were real issues with land use caused by this policy, which wasn't necessarily really designed to work in Western landscapes. Tell us about that. When we really start to look at it in terms of 160 acres in these areas of really diverse landscapes and with these huge climatic swings, it's really tough to sustain oneself on simply 160 acres. The West is is a little bit of a different landscape. And so climatically, harsher weather makes it really difficult. And, you know, from a livestock standpoint, you just need more acres in order to get that production. There's less rain, there's going to be harsher winters, there's shorter growing seasons. And so that 160 acres, we quickly learned just wasn't quite big enough from a sustainable production standpoint. One of the historical moments you talk about in the podcast is that at a certain moment, people figured out that if you fenced off land, you'd save more of your livestock from predators. Yes, that makes sense. But if you fenced off land and removed predators entirely, like wolves, you'd save livestock and you'd save labor costs. You didn't need to have as many people riding and looking after the livestock. How much of the movement to kill wolves during this big wolf extirpation, how much of that was about money, about the economics of ranching? When you think about it in terms of if there's no predators to have to worry about, so there's less fencing structure, there's less infrastructure, there's less need to put people on the landscape in terms of protecting the livestock or riding with the livestock, That's a those are huge economic drivers and those are huge costs within an operation. And depending on the scale of that operation, to not have to worry about fencing or excluding animals out of certain grazing allotments. It certainly was one of the primary components to it is that it was just a lot more efficient to raise livestock and maintain a profitable operation if you didn't have to worry about predators and excluding animals and fencing and putting more people and and workers on the landscape. There's a cultural piece too. I mean, there was a real fear and loathing of wolves that that ran pretty deep and still does. You talk about the fact that there's predation of livestock by mountain lions and bears, but somehow they're not the bad guys and wolves are. What's that all about? How do you understand that? Yeah, there's one of the things we say is that wolves create a lot of emotion and there's different sides to that coin. You know, wolves can invoke a symbol of wildness and almost a mystical sense in some. And to others, it's kind of ingrained in from fairy tales that we hear about growing up, like Little Red Riding Hood, to references within the Bible, which we mention in the podcast, is that, you know, you've got this symbol of wildness on one side and this symbol of evil on the other. So let's talk about sort of getting up to the current day. I mean, in in 1995, wolves were introduced into Yellowstone National Park. But of course, wolves don't stay within park boundaries. And so then you had a situation where wolves were on public land, they were on private land, they were on ranch lands. How did you see different ranchers reacting when they started seeing 
wolves setting up dens on their ranches. Yeah, it's pretty much the whole sweep. We tell the story of the first wolves that were reintroduced to the park that came out of that park relatively quickly and denned on a ranch outside of Roscoe, Montana. And it's funny to hear that story because that particular operation and and ranch management was kind of excited. It was kind of new. You know, they kind of wanted to see what was going to happen there. And but yet their neighbors didn't all feel kind of the same. Yeah, it's interesting. There really is, even among ranchers, quite a variety of opinions and feelings about wolves. There is. You know, a lot of people think it's kind of doom and gloom, but in reality, landowners and livestock producers care about the environment and the wildlife as well. They're dependent on this landscape and ecosystem, and so if they take care of the land, it'll take care of them. And and I don't want to generalize and just speak for ranchers and producers because I'm a wildlife biologist and I'm a wildlife manager, but for the most part, they want to just be recognized for the value that they provide to society and the open space and the wildlife habitat. And that's not necessarily something everyone immediately understands and connects to and, you know, kind of the intangibles of ecosystem services provided that these large ranching operations help to maintain and sustain. It's a conversation that I sometimes have with people who are vegans and who are righteous about not killing animals. And you can make the point of how many other types of animals are sustained on a ranch besides the livestock and how many animals were killed on a field that's producing produce or fruit or grains. And where there's not a single animal, all the animals have been removed or killed. Absolutely. And another good point that people don't often realize is, yes, there's irrigated fields, but for the most part, you know, the livestock are eating grass and that grass is what's catching that rainwater and that runoff versus a lot of the monocultural production, whether it's an almond tree orchard or or whatever, is that a lot of that's irrigated. So the main issue here is the problem of wolves killing livestock and other predators kill livestock too. How common is this among the people that you have been talking to? Is it rare? Is it an everyday thing? Is it, you know, as much a fear as a reality? I mean, what are you seeing on the ground? One of the things I learned early on as a biologist is that the best answer to the question is it depends and and it really does. This is not an issue that is equally absorbed by people across the landscape. Wolves pose almost no human threat, but when you get into these working landscapes, particularly on a matrix amongst state and federally protected lands or national park systems where these reintroduction efforts are occurring, and you have thriving predator and prey bases, which Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, these areas here, they have some of the largest assemblages of ungulates and large predators on the landscape in the entire northern hemisphere. And so you still have these wild, open spaces with these private ranching operations kind of serving as the connectedness that maintain that permeability that allow wildlife to traverse the landscape. And in those areas, it is pretty common. 
but on the grand scheme of agricultural production in the entire U.S., only a handful of states are, are really dealing with it. And so from a large standpoint, when you step back, it's, it's a small percentage. But in the areas where they are dealing with it, it can be what makes or breaks. So when you say make or break, tell us more. Are you saying that wolves killing livestock are, are literally making or breaking a ranch operation? Or what does that look like? Yeah. So, you know, from an operational standpoint, some of it could just be having to compete with other ranching operations that don't have to deal with some of these wildlife issues, such as predation by wolves or bears or other large predators. And so people, when they're picking up their meat in the store, don't really know, did that come from a feedlot operation or or something that was open range within this diverse landscape that's having to deal with some of these issues and they're competing at the same price when it comes down to to selling that at the market. And so every producer we talk to, it's not like they're just wringing their hands and saying that this is the cost of doing business. What we heard and what we see is that these people care about their husbandry practices and their livestock. They don't want to lose a single one. These people really take pride in their work. So they're starting to have to proactively try and mitigate these issues when there's they share the landscape with some of these larger predators. And so, you know, what does that look like? Is it fencing or is it range riding or is it turbo flattery or is it a carcass management type of situation? And all of that takes bandwidth or additional personnel or infrastructure Yes, there's compensation. Oftentimes, it's the direct cost for the loss of a particular individual. It doesn't offset the cost and time that went into filing that claim or the potential generations of genetics that were bred within that individual or production it could have had in the future. But there's also not really durable and sustained funding for some of those mitigation practices they just don't have it right now. And so all of that is is different things that have to be added to the plate within these operations rather than focusing on what really makes the operation profitable. You know, in different landscapes, it, it's very difficult when you have more of an open range or a summer range setting to timely identify when a depredation event has occurred and get that claim filed before the area is scavenged on and it it becomes impossible to really determine what happened to that animal. And so there's a lot of nuance that a lot of people just aren't that exposed to when we start thinking about kind of the rural urban audiences, which is really what we geared this podcast towards is, is both audience bases. One thing I learned listening to your podcast is that the profit margins for ranching have gone down quite a lot. There was a day in which the carcasses of animals would be delivered to the market and there would be a butcher who processed the animal for customers, and it was a very local kind of thing. Now it's such a different procedure, much less personal, much more about mega corporations, and the ranchers are kind of getting squeezed out. It is. There's a lot of dollars being saved in that. And Cole Mannix with the Old Salt Co-op speaks to this very eloquently in, in the podcast. And 
you know, they have this initiative, Meet with Integrity, that tries to tell some of that nuance in terms of how that animal went from birth to market. It's a very different story. And how do you capture some of that, particularly as the society becomes a little bit more interested in where that meat is coming from and, and how it was raised or processed? There's this growing interest in wanting to have that understanding and relationship in terms of what you're consuming and feeding your family and how that was raised and where it came from. One of the things that we've talked about many times on this program is holistic land management, rotational grazing, and the whole practice, which is kind of a biomimicry in which cattle are bunched closer together as bison stayed close together on the prairie precisely to protect against predators, including wolves. Does that help against wolf depredation here in the West? Those are really excellent questions, and we have some data on that. But what we're really seeing is it's context dependent, depending on whether you're ranching in the Southwest and in Arizona or New Mexico or in Eastern Oregon, or maybe you're in the Centennial Valley or the Rocky Mountain Front. Like geographically, those places are very different. And what tools work and in what situations is there's so many factors that go into that from is it summer versus winter range or are you grazing almost year round? Are you in a small enough setting that fencing might be appropriate in a pasture setting? And so it's tough to definitively give an answer to that question, but absolutely seeing ways that you can mimicry when you think about how the system kind of evolved historically to groups of animals moving across the landscape, it would make a lot of sense. And any time that you can have more eyes on the acre and a tighter group of individuals, that can help aid in that in terms of mitigating those conflicts. You said a moment ago that you really are creating this podcast for both urban and rural listeners. And one of the main themes running through the podcast is the conversation about values. How would you characterize the different people and values around the issue of wolf reintroduction and the presence of wolves on the landscapes? What are those different values you're talking about? One of the things we talk about is kind of this traditionalist versus mutualist wildlife value. And and I'm not a sociologist, but Essentially, and I, I hate putting people into buckets, but the traditionalist looks at how wildlife and the environment can be managed in perpetuity, so for future generations, but from a management standpoint, versus a, a mutualist puts wildlife more on the same plane as people and oftentimes kind of associates anthropomorphic aspects with wildlife kind of these human components and, and of equal value there. And so how you approach a wildlife issue is very different depending on that viewpoint of whether you're looking at it from a management standpoint and one that can be used for the good of, of people or one that sees the issue from kind of an equal playing field with people. So you're making the distinction between the traditionalist versus the mutualist which is also sometimes called conservation versus preservation. 
The conservation idea thinks of the landscape in terms of stewardship of natural resources for people, while the preservation idea is more about seeing the inherent worth of all living beings, as you said, putting them on the same plane, and it's really about protecting nature from people. So preservationists want wolves on the landscape, and a lot of conservationists are okay with wolves as long as there's management and their livestock are protected. But then there's another group, and those are the people who want to get rid of wolves altogether. And it's not about management. It's the same attitude that had those millions of wolves killed 100-plus years ago. Yeah, I mean, that's there's certainly that, that opinion and, and that kind of mind frame. And, you know, wolves were extirpated from the United States in the early 1900s. And so the landscape has changed. There's more people on it climactically things are changing and so we just don't have a shared vision of what the future really looks like for wolves on the landscape on one side you have people that would love to see wolves back over their entire historic range which that went from mexico to canada and almost all the lower 48 states and then alaska and then you have those that would love to see wolves not on the landscape and we're trying to approach it somewhere in the middle in the nuance of, of that and, and try and find some of that common ground is that there's really room for both. So what is that common ground? What does that common ground look like? Like, how do you envision a kind of coming together with common values in that middle space? Yeah, I think that's kind of the million dollar question. You know, wolves are controversial, but what we really see is if we can get a mutual understanding of other people's perspectives, is what we really see is that everybody cares about wildlife. Our producers love wildlife too. Interacting with wildlife is a part of their culture. It's it's why they, they do what they do. They love being close to nature. And while wolves may be a little harder to love, most of the producers we spoke to accept their return, particularly when it's accompanied by reasonable wildlife management that they have a chance and voice to help shape. So a lot of it really stems, I think, for us to get to a shared vision is how do we come to a mutual understanding of each other's perspectives? And and that seems to be really tough as, you know, society seems ever more divided. And so we're hoping that coming at things from the intersection of working lands and wildlife management and taking people into place. And that's what our podcast is, this immersive style podcast. So whether it's the like a producer's operation or Yellowstone National Park or the legislature sessions, which we do, we have clips from all of that, is that maybe we can create a little bit of this shared understanding I was listening to a, a debate the other day on an entirely different topic that had to do with gun rights and gun safety and stuff like that. And the most moving moment in this conversation was when one person said to the other, you actually listened to what I said. I thank you so much for that. Most people don't even listen. And it seemed like that's really part of what's going on in what you're doing. And I wondered if you, you know, have you seen moments like that where a group 
or a person really felt listened to and it kind of changed the vibe of the situation and the ability to find that common ground? I think we are. In the wildlife world, we're seeing a lot of groups coming together once they kind of see that they share some common ground. For wildlife, and that includes wolves, to be able to stay on the landscape, we need open, connected spaces. There is no protected area within the United States that can singularly maintain biodiversity for wildlife. Our private working lands, private land holdings account for two-thirds of the United States. And so we need those rural working lands that serve as this connectedness between our state and federal protected areas that wildlife traverse, that wildlife depend on, and the habitat they need. It needs to stay that, you know, working, productive landscapes. Because if we lose the habitat, we lose the farms and ranches, no one wins. And so we're starting to see NGOs and state agencies and private landowners and landowner-led groups all coming together around these common themes. Part of what led to this whole effort was working with Western Landowners Alliance around this conflict reduction consortium. And it, it consists of 40 diverse stakeholders across the West. That's a lot. That's a lot of different stakeholders invested in the same issue with a lot of different values and opinions, but all coming together under this shared struggle and success of working alongside wolves. When you talk about these 40 stakeholders, what are some examples of the kind of folks or groups you mean? Yeah, so within that Conflict Reduction Consortium, you have groups like the Madison Valley Ranchlands Group, and you have state and federal agencies. You have defenders of wildlife and representatives from other groups like that. There's researchers, there's biologists, there's environmental groups, there's producers, there's producer-led groups. And so it's really cool to see, and they understand the dependency that wildlife have on a lot of these working landscapes. And that if we lose a lot of those operations, is it's generally the land usage shifts to something not as friendly for for wildlife. Like subdivisions. Absolutely. And when you think about working with one or two landowners across several thousand acres on an open connected landscape versus, as you mentioned, you know, subdivisions and fencing and HOAs and, you know, now you have a lot of voices and a lot of this broken connectedness that's not there anymore. I think it's important to talk about why there has been wolf reintroduction in the first place. It's not only because wolves are a mammal that belongs on this landscape and has a right to live. It's because also top carnivores like wolves have an effect on the landscape. I mean, they're a keystone species and they really do have a role to play in creating and maintaining a healthy ecosystem. Talk about that. One of my favorite quotes by Aldo Leopold, kind of the father of wildlife ecology, wildlife management, 
is to keep every cog and wheel as the first thought to intelligent tinkering. And wolves absolutely have their place within the landscape. They're a keystone species in the landscape. They help control wildlife populations as well. Overbrowsing, overgrazing, those are huge issues. But having those individuals on the landscape have a lot of positive influence on the environment and certainly have their place and role. And again, as humans, you know, it's our role to do whatever we can in terms of maintaining healthy, sustainable ecosystems. And it's a wildlife species. That's a public trust species. There's a a lot of research out there that has showed like in Yellowstone as you know, once they started having a better handle in terms of a lot of the ungulate species there, the stream restoration, the return of aspen. And so that's an area that we're still learning, but clearly wolves play a tremendous role in maintaining an ecosystem stability, controlling ungulate numbers. It's a fun topic. Well, one thing that's happening that I think is interesting is that there's an economy that's arisen around wolf watching. Mm. It's kind of like an ecotourism model that includes, you know, recreation and photography and sitting very still at dawn and, and watching the wolves and seeing what's happening. What does that look like and how does it fit into the whole big picture that we've been talking about? We spend a lot of time talking about this issue from a working lens perspective, but really we wanted to approach it from a middle ground. And it's like we talk about Yellowstone wolves and, you know, our national park system has more of a preservation approach versus a a conservation and management approach outside the park. And then what happens when those collide? And we talk about the pressure that wildlife issues such as predation can do on, on working landowners and how those stressors can shrink the bottom line and the danger that poses. But the same can be said for these kind of gateway communities around some of these federally protected areas where people come from not just all over the U.S. People come from all over the world to see wolves in Yellowstone. It's the best place to see wolves. They're visible. People are drawn to it. And that provides a lot of dollars to these gateway communities in terms of tourist and wildlife watching related costs and expenditures. And that's important too. One thing that happens when wolves are too near people, I mean, it's very important to keep wolves and people separate and not develop close relationships because when wolves lose their fear, that can get into all kinds of messes. It can, and we see that a little bit in our in our Yellowstone National Park episode where we talk about habituated wolves, and it's kind of like any wildlife species, right, is, you know, the golden rule, don't feed the wildlife, and, you know, don't do things that allow wildlife to associate people with a positive interaction or, or a positive reward. What happens when they get habituated? Anytime, you know, an animal becomes habituated and comfortable around people, they're going to lose that fear and they're going to associate people with some sort of positive reaction. Oftentimes it's it's food. And anytime you have wildlife associating people with food, you tend to get interactions. And oftentimes that's a that's a negative interaction and, and 
can become a deadly interaction for the wildlife. The other times is when you have animals habituated to people without fear of people on an area that also is traversed with vehicles, you get collisions as well. And so there's a lot of things there that collide when animals become more and more comfortable around people. Right, right. Another thing that happens is that when wolves get used to eating livestock and they develop a taste for it, mm. it's really different than wolves in the wild who tend to have a taste for like elk and deer and they prefer that to livestock. Yeah, that's a really good point because what we have is really there's some success stories to be told in terms of, you know, there's more grizzly bears and wolves on the landscape than there have been for decades, you know, almost a century. Yet the working landscape is is ever shrinking in terms of habitat loss and development and production. And so you've got expanding wildlife populations on a shrinking landscape. And so you're inevitably putting more wildlife on a smaller area interacting with livestock. And so conflict is going to occur. And these animals are, are not dumb. They know that their survival depends on obtaining food in the most efficient means possible. And once you realize that livestock may be an easier target than chasing elk in the snow or chasing some of the ungulate species, it just makes sense that they might, again, I, I use the word habituated, might become habituated to feeding on livestock. That's not always the case. And we see that different individual wildlife have different preferences. But in reality, if one is an easier meal, you're going to have a tough time once that becomes kind of a habituated thing, breaking that cycle. And so what do they do when that happens? When that occurs, you have a couple different approaches. Uh, Western landowners kind of has put this in a packet called the, the four C's. Compensation, so compensating when the when a negative interaction occurs, so a depredation event. So that means when an animal is killed, you get money from the government. Yeah, so compensating for those depredated livestock. There's conflict prevention, which are these non-lethal conflict mitigation tools. Like what? There's, you know, turboflagery uh, is one of those. And so that's like putting out fencing that's electrified with strips of ribbon on it. Wolves are very neophobic. And so anything that's kind of new or different, that's kind of a, a limited use tool because they, you know, eventually will become comfortable and familiar with that. There's range riding, and that's simply putting more people on the landscape, again, that are watching over and we're studying this because there's so many different approaches to range riding. They have some range riders just ride the herd, and so they're managing the herd. They're looking for early injuries and early carcass detections or down fencing. And others ride it from a wildlife standpoint of trying to monitor the wildlife and their behavior and their movement on the landscape and try and put that constant pressure on them to keep some difference and separation between the livestock and the wildlife. And then some states, it, this varies in terms of the state you reside in, but then there's control, which is part of the conversation. And we're talking lethal control, and that doesn't mean public hunting. That's the either federal or, or state going in and, and removing 
quote-unquote kind of bad individuals that have become habituated to feeding on livestock in an effort to hopefully reduce the amount of wildlife and livestock that are going to be lost. And then there's collaboration, which is kind of the key to all of it. And what we kind of stem at is that we have to be able to respect each other's points of view and perspectives and be able to appreciate where people are coming from and be willing to collaborate for mutual understanding and kind of win-win scenarios. So the four C's, conflict prevention, compensation, control, and collaboration, sounds like we could uh, bring, bring those principles into other parts of our lives as well. I wondered, you know, what kind of reactions you're getting. You know, this is a podcast. It's it's partway through the first season, and it's very much geared toward a broad audience and a diverse audience. What kind of reactions have you been getting? For the most part, we have been blown away with the positive feedback. Like anything, I, I was always, I'm always very worried when you approach a very complicated passionate issue such as wolves my fear is I was only going to hear from the really loud voices on either extreme and and luckily I feel like I've gotten a lot of and I say I we uh, this group our effort a lot of feedback from in between that it's refreshing it's good to hear that there is still this middle ground and willingness to approach people from just a human perspective, to realize we're all humans, we're all imperfect, and we all should have a say in this issue. And and how can we make sure everyone is heard and try and approach it from the most reasonable perspective? But we also have to realize that the people that have to live with wolves on the landscape is a much smaller percentage. And so we have to approach that with that kind of understanding of what we're truly asking of people, particularly the people that live on these working land interfaces. Jared Beaver is Wildlife Extension Specialist at Montana State University in Bozeman, and he's co-host of the podcast Working Wild University, which you can find on all the different podcast platforms. You can also find out more about the podcast at workingwild.us. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Mary Charlotte. I've enjoyed it. You've been listening to Down to Earth. We would love it if you would support this program, which you can do by going to patreon.com slash down to earth planet to plate, where you can sign up for as little as $3. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And also please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Kivira Coalition is a not-for-profit and a community network of ranchers, farmers, conservationists, scientists, educators, and many others dedicated to regenerative practices that produce healthy food, support meaningful livelihoods, sustain biodiversity, and remedy the impacts of climate change. To learn more about Kivira and how you can support their work, visit kiviracoalition.org, Q-U-I-V-I-R-A. And finally, this show is a production with the Radio Cafe. You can check out radiocafe.org to hear back episodes of this show and also find all kinds of other shows on a wide variety of topics as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.